This podcast contains profanity, descriptions of a sexual nature, violence, and drug misuse. Listener discretion advised. feeling could best be described as heaven. Danny felt a divine bliss as she emerged from the water. She had savored every second of being submerged in its freezing cold embrace, loving the feeling of her long blonde hair being tugged as it was suspended in the water. Her skin now tingled as it met the warm air. Is that it? Am I born again? She whispered to Pastor Martin, the young black church leader who stood by the edge of the stone pool. Yes. He whispered with a smile. Danny stepped out of the pool dripping water on the floor. The caring young pastor quickly handed her a towel. It's likely she would have never given church a go if it wasn't for him. His kind smile and youthful enthusiasm kept bringing her back. She owed her life to the church, as did many lost souls in this crime-riddled city. It gave them one thing they needed the most, hope. St. Luke's wasn't the only house of God offering respite from the anarchy. It was one in a cluster of churches situated in the East Side District. Some were new, some were old, but all were sorely needed. Just 20 minutes drive away was a long stretch of road purely dedicated to nocturnal entertainment, a moral vacuum known as the Strip. Danny had endured her fair share of regretful incidents on its cursed ground and hoped she would never end up back there. My past is forgotten now, she reminded herself. For the first time in her life, she felt clean and pure. Finally, her past could die and lay in rest. As she rubbed herself dry, Danny's mind was in too much of a daze to take in what Pastor Martin was saying. Her eyes drifted, appreciating her quaint and warm surroundings. The sun illuminated the colorful stained glass window, shaped like a shield. Danny soaked up every ounce of its energy. The young pastor climbed the few small steps to the raised floor. His red shirt and matching tie still stained from the water which had not yet dried. Danny, with the help of one of the congregation, finished drying herself, and rushed to change in the back room. She returned as soon as possible, so not to miss Pastor Martin speak his message. Taking her seat on the front row next to her proud boyfriend Joseph, she squeezed his hand and gave him a peck on the cheek. She could feel the weight of the water on her damp hair. She knew she might well look a mess, but she didn't care. I'm free, and I'm truly blessed. God willing, she would marry Joseph in this very church next year. Soon after that, she wanted to start a family. There was no more time to waste. A whole new life was starting for her, and no one had to know of her old one. As she looked at Joseph, his head bowed in prayer, her mind drifted to the past. Are the other girls still at the brothel? Did my angel, sweet Southern Bobby, ever leave? Baptism. Pastor Martin announced loudly. We have just witnessed a baptism, an amazing life-changing event. What does it actually mean? It means you have been born again in God's image. You are a new person, and everything around you is new. The sky is new, the trees are new. More importantly, the way you look at life is new. It's redemption, a rebirth. And you know what the best thing about it is? 
anyone can have it. It doesn't matter who you are and what you have done. Danny didn't know why, but at that moment, she glanced to the back of the church. An imposing stranger standing near the door caught her eye. A disturbed feeling came over her. His face was hidden in the far reaches of her mind, as if from a dream or a past life. Jesus! Jesus! Pastor Martin quickly brought her attention back to the front of the church. That's why I speak the message of redemption with such conviction. When John the Baptist used to baptize people, he did it for repentance. When Jesus did it, he did it for redemption. There's no need to make others pay for their sins, as our Savior Jesus Christ paid that debt. We cannot shun our brothers or exclude our neighbors. Who did Jesus hang around with? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the house thieves. He was crucified alongside them. They are the ones that need to be saved. So, I say, show love and compassion. We are all the same. I know a lot of people in the city have a disdain for what they call warps. Well, I say, they do not need chemical stimulus. That's not what their body needs. It's love and acceptance. We must not shame or shun them. Danny felt strange at the mention of warps. It was an abbreviation commonly used in Pentagon City for heroin and opiate addicts, walking corpses. She was glad they were remembered, but at the same time, wanted them forgotten. No one could deny the city was littered with them, and worse still, there seemed to be a never-ending line of them taking their own lives. I wish more could find God and be saved like me. We all have good in us. We all have God in us, Pastor Martin declared. So I say to the law-abiding and the lawless, you are one in the same. And if you accept Jesus into your life, you will enter the kingdom of God. As Pastor Martin continued to speak, Danny couldn't help twisting her neck and glancing behind her. She noticed the rest of the congregation doing the same. The man stared back with wolf-like eyes, laden with scorn. How can that face be in my mind? She agonized. It wasn't surprising his presence had rattled the audience. His features instantly evoked fear. He was tall. Danny guessed about six feet two. He possessed a bulky frame, piercing emerald green eyes, and black lines of tattooed ink snaked across his right cheek. A few of the congregation were less subtle than Danny, turning their whole bodies to stare at him, all of them too scared to ask who he was. Go and spread the message, spread love, and have a great week, Pastor Martin announced, lifting his arms to the sky. The congregation rose to their feet, applauded, and gradually started to shuffle out. Danny purposely held back, so not to get close to the mysterious stranger who was heading out with the crowd. Her left hand was shaking. She knew her body was revealing what her mind was concealed. I've encountered him before. This is Dance of the Lawless, Episode 1.
Chapter 1. Lorenzo. Friday, 19th June, Gosford City. Lorenzo Cremosa stood out on the restaurant terrace of the Bugle Hotel. He had been away from his home in Baton, the southern western district of Pentagon City, for the last week on business. Luckily for him, his business was mostly pleasure. As much as he had enjoyed himself, warmth filled his heart with the promise of a grand Italian meal and time with his family when he returned home. Before long, he would buy an apartment in Baton and bring his wife and children with him. Lorenzo was treated like royalty at the hotel. He felt safe there. So much so, he had been comfortable leaving his minders in their room. He had wasted the day away, slowly moving in dim light from one vehicle of relaxation to another. People assumed the high-class guests, including doctors, lawyers, and bankers, would shy away from the Cremosas, given their open secret. That couldn't be more untrue. The top layer of society couldn't resist rubbing shoulders with them, either out of curiosity or to see which of the problems the family could help solve. Lorenzo's dear younger brother Roberto liked the schmoozing much more than him, but he was far too much of a restless soul for a place like this. Roberto liked to entice people into his world at the family-run casino in Baton. Baton was their district, the heart place of the Italians. Now the war was won, the Cremosas wouldn't be confined to Baton. Roberto had designs on moving into the Mark Anthony Casino, next door to the old enemy's favorite haunt. Lorenzo wanted to do everything he could to see his brother's dreams come true. The Cremosas' victory was also contributing to Lorenzo's current season of rest. There had been no dilution of his lust for power and success. He just understood when it was time to enjoy the spoils of conflict, especially one as long and bloody as the Samuels' war. His family, typical Italians, hot-headed, impatient, now pressured him to dissolve the alliance with the Mexicans. This was the time for stability and regrouping, not another conflict. Besides, the Mexicans were not difficult to manipulate. Lorenzo waited patiently on the rooftop garden, next to twin burning lamps glowing in the night sky. The owner of the hotel was a spiritual man who said they represented twin souls, two people who were the mirror of each other, destined to meet and change each other's lives forever. Lorenzo could have been a slice of the sky, dressed in all black, with fine spiky dark hair. His eyes twinkled brightly like the stars. Natalia had gone to freshen up and now rejoined him. She was a secretary who worked in a building the Cremosa family looked after. Her wavy dark hair and olive skin matched the beauty of their surroundings. Lorenzo stared at her toned body and the tight black dress. A scarlet scarf sat delicately over her dainty shoulders. She took his hand in hers as they walked to the edge of the roof, standing next to tall olive trees. It was another romantic moment in what had been a romantic evening. She stroked his arm and slid her arm behind his back. Have you had a nice evening, my darling? Lorenzo asked. I've had an amazing night, and it's not over yet, Natalia said with a glint in her eye. Shall we go to your room? You don't like it up here? It's beautiful. Yeah, but you know... She said, sliding her hand down his back and cupping a buttock. I think the evening should probably end on this rooftop, Lorenzo told her. Lorenzo? She purred, moving her mouth close to his. Please, my wife. Why all of this, then? One day you will realize that no thrill in this world is better than anticipation. 
That sounds like an insult to me. <laughs> it's been a great evening. You're beautiful and great company. We've had good food, good wine. Why spoil it or disrespect the mother of my children for a few minutes of gratification? Lorenzo enjoyed his dates, savoring the company of different women. All his dates were with women that were not his wife. How can you date your wife? He reasoned. Never take sand to the beach. He would often tell his friends. Lorenzo loved nothing better than flirting, with men too in the absence of a woman. Nothing felt better than that early flow of chemicals rushing through the body at first attractions. He knew that the next stage of romance was never the same. In times past, he had fooled himself into believing it could be, or missed the person too much to let go. But these days, his dates all ended like this. I thought you were a risk taker. I don't know why I have the reputation of a risk taker. I'm nothing compared to Roberto. You know, he went to the Secret Soul Club the other night by himself with no protection. Lorenzo flattened his eyebrows with his finger. He does twice as many tricky things as me. And then he wants as much attention on himself as possible. Does he still want to get into politics? Natalia asked with a little enthusiasm. Yeah, in the next couple of years he does. So, you're turning me down? You won't be any happier if you come to my room. At least I can say I've fucked Lorenzo Cremosa. There are certain women whose naked flesh hold allure. Cleopatra, Marilyn Monroe, conquering one's enemy's wives. Lorenzo mused. There was one particular wife of the old enemy that was one such woman. An enigmatic beauty, he had been told. He had never even had a glimpse of her. I'm not one of them, I suppose, Natalia said, her face dropping like a stone. Absolutely, she was not, he thought. You're gorgeous. You know, out of all the girls, you are my favorite. You've enjoyed a five-star evening. Let's end the night in a nice way. And what's a nice way? He held his hand to her cheek. With a kiss, of course, he said tenderly meeting his lips with hers, hundreds of feet above the countless underachieving ants below. himself into the room of his minders, Ronnie and Julius. Julius might not have had the fierce drive or intelligence to get to the very top of the Cremosa organization, but he would have at least gotten to the higher echelons if not for his muddled bloodline. Despite not being pure Italian, his prison-built 300-pound frame and easy personality made him ideal as Lorenzo's personal bodyguard. As well as his giant physique, Julius also had invaluable connections, which gave him a direct line to the Pentagon City patrol officers. Lorenzo had decided to have a nightcap with them before retiring to his own suite. Once inside, he could see the door to the balcony was ajar, and could hear them talking outside. Ronnie had been with Lorenzo a long time, and his father before him. His belly had swelled with age. He stood so close to Julius, their shoulders touching as they talked in husked voices. They did not hear Lorenzo approaching, and he ducked to the side of the door, 
peered around and listened hard. They were discussing him. No, don't bring it up. They don't even need to be mentioned again in this lifetime. Too many cremosas are lying in the cemetery thanks to them. Julius said, sweat glistening off his forehead matching the shine on his greased back hair. What if it's true? Asked Ronnie, shifting his considerable weight from side to side, rubbing his eyebrows. It can be true. There is no way they could have been on the strip two days ago. Julius said, lighting his cigar, dwarfed by his bear-like hands. Ronnie fiddled with his big chunky gold rings, spinning them around in his fingers. I've heard all kinds of rumors over the last two years. I heard Samuels was in a Japanese jail for maiming his chef, cause he thought he was trying to fuck his wife. If he's not, he's a washed up schizophrenic. There is only the three of them left now. If they placed one foot back in Pentagon, they would have been killed like dogs. I heard of a sighting of Tanner a few months ago, Julius told him, taking a drag of his cigar. Ronnie paused as he held a waving yellow flame to his own cigar. There is no way they've been back that long and we haven't heard about it. We've got nothing. You must understand Lorenzo is still grieving. It's for the best we never mention them. Yeah, I guess you're right, Julius said, staring into the night. Lorenzo slipped back out of the room. He wanted to be alone. He shrugged off his doubts. They wouldn't dare come back. Chapter 2. Retribution. Scotty's House, Rosemere Gardens, South Bank. Saturday, 20th June, 10.40 p.m. Scotty Gethin locked the door of his house behind him. He left the sophistication of South Bank, passing its parks, museums, and libraries to walk through Donovan Park, which, due to its shape, was known as the Mushroom. He joined the winding path that led into Eastside and to the edge of the Strip. The path was long, with unkempt grasses on either side. This could be a spot for violence, Scotty thought. Dark and secluded. How he wished they would walk along now. He tried to picture their faces, but they wouldn't come to his mind. Not to have an object for his brooding made his frustration consuming and constant. He hoped he would recognize them if he ever saw them. He prayed he would. His anger desperately needed an outlet. Scotty met no one along the path and climbed to the west end of the strip. This part was full of sleazy titty bars, exotic shows, and rock clubs. Prostitution was rife, as were drugs. Warps crawled in and out of the bars like locusts. Medium built with dark skin, Scotty thought he still looked young and handsome enough for someone in their 30s. He didn't care for his naturally puffy and chubby face, which wasn't helped by his penchant for alcohol. He wore his favorite clothes, flared checkered pants, a long sleeve collared shirt, and a big suede jacket. A purple fedora hat completed his look. Scotty's vision was assaulted by the purple light pulsating down the 40-foot lightning bolt that stood on top of the live wire rock club. An assortment of vehicles, from Jeeps and town cars to Ferraris and Cadillacs, added a soundtrack to the mayhem. They cruised up and down, divided by devil red dual center lines. As he passed the Montez Theater, Scotty had to shrug off a leather-clad punk who had been pushed out the front of the door, and now fought to keep his balance in high heels. It wasn't the last rocker he had to avoid before he reached the giant, glowing, spinning domino piece. 
Domino's was the most popular gay club in the city. Scotty loved nothing better than to dance into Sunday morning. At least he used to. He grabbed a drink at the bar before walking up the spiral metal staircase to the balcony. Huge paintings of smeared black and red paint dominated the high walls. He held his drink to his chest as he watched male seduction play out on the dance floor below him. He swept his straight and dark hair out of his mascara-heavy lashes and coal-lined eyes. Fiddling with his dangling earring, he focused on one particular young couple that were tenderly touching each other's faces as they danced. He felt his throat swell and his eyes become full. I shouldn't have come in here. This is a mistake. I have to get out of here. Escape. Anywhere. He downed his drink and left directly the way he came in. He put his hand out to hail a cab, but withdrew it quickly. Who am I kidding? He chastised himself. There is only one place I'm headed tonight. Scotty crossed the great bridge that took him to the opposite side of the strip. Exhibiting fake confidence as he walked, he followed flashing neon beacons until he reached the center of the greedy beast. He glanced at all the giddy, carefree revelers that passed him, fearful to hold their gaze. I have been in the middle of a war zone, and now look at me. What have I become? He clenched his fists in a reaffirmation to himself. I have to summon the courage to equal my anger. Scotty stopped at NJ's. It had become the hottest place in town, a giant nightclub that stood next to the Mark Anthony Casino. It attracted people from every part of the city. If you had enough money, you could be catered for better than any other place on the Strip. Scotty was filled with apprehension as he walked through the quiet, illuminated tunnel that led to the lobby. As soon as he heard the loud dance music and felt the heat from the mass of moving bodies, his skin crawled and his cheeks flushed. The vibrations from the bass shuddered up his ribcage and through his sternum. He hovered uncomfortably near the lobby entrance. A nausea gripped his body when, through the crowd, he immediately saw two of the doormen from the other night. Standing only feet away was the huge man with the thin hair and mustache, the one Scotty had pleaded with, the one who had given him bruises that still littered his arms. He was talking to the younger, stocky one with black hair cropped short on the sides. Scotty slid his hat from his head. He backed towards the pair as discreetly as he could, using the crowd as a shield. You all right, Eddie? Said the man mountain with fine sandy hair, pursing his wavy lips. Yeah, all right, Terrence. Eddie replied. Any problems, brother? Terrence questioned in a chasm deep voice, itching his mustache. Nah, fuck all tonight. So where do you think he is? Eddie said, with equal levels of concern in Gliana's hard-featured face. Fuck knows, brother. Replied Terrence with a wry smile. When was he last here, Wednesday? You were in Wednesday, weren't you? Did anything happen? It was a wild night. The madness was all around, brother. He disappeared for a couple hours, but that ain't unusual. We did have to sort out a guy in the office. Later we found a young guy outside in the rain with his head caved in. Did Nicky deal with it? Eddie asked. Yeah, brother. He seemed just as bad before, but I guess he did leave right after. Someone said he banned any further entries that night. I don't know about that. But you know what? Before he left, he did utter something strange. What? Eddie asked. He muttered, it's her. The mute is here. Who the fuck is the mute? I have no holy idea, brother. Terrence said, shaking his meaty head. Nikki will be back soon enough. He'll just be partying somewhere. I guess we just gotta carry on till he gets back. 
You take over here and I'll walk the club, Terrence told him. The bouncers parted ways, and it prompted Scotty to move into the club to a bar. I can't believe they just talked about Wednesday and did not mention poor Thomas. Heartless bastards. If the Nicky they were talking about was the NJ's boss, then Scotty was glad he was missing. His club is a disgrace. Normally, Scotty would order a glass of white wine, but tonight wasn't the night for that. He asked for a triple vodka on the rocks. It was gone in seconds. Scotty robotically scanned the whole first floor. The bar, the lobby, the dance floor, the tables, and the semicircular benches. He took everyone in. Couples dancing, lonely men like him, groups of girls. He disregarded them all. Instead, he focused on the gangs of men, all drunk and still drinking. Their chests pushed out like competing gorillas. Scotty didn't recognize any of them, not even close. Despite this, he couldn't help watching them, listening to them. He picked out a small group of five men, all wearing sharp suits. As he watched them laughing, gesturing and drinking, his anger only intensified. He wanted to take his small, thick glass and smash it in their faces. Unable to resist dwelling on the source of his anger, Scotty took a seat near them. Their vulgar conversations flowed through his ears for at least half an hour. It transpired their night on the town was even more perilous than he would have imagined. It became obvious this was a stag party, and an apparent act of rebellion against a spoiled and demanding bride was a secret one to boot. To compound the risk, it was the night before the wedding, which would be tomorrow morning at 10. The group were wearing the wedding suits, and the hefty spiky-haired best man they called Josh kept whipping the wedding ring out of his pocket. Things went from bad to worse when the groom disappeared with the red-headed girl and didn't return. The most boisterous one of the group, a baby-faced guy with a blonde buzz cut who had thrown a few glares Scotty's way, seemed to be getting riled up at the absence of the groom and the disintegration of the evening. He poured drinks down his neck and slammed the bottles back down on the table. When he staggered away towards the bathroom, Scotty heard him slur that now that the groom was gone, they would play their prank on Josh instead. When the blonde kid returned, he seemed even more agitated. Scotty knew it was time he left. Why am I doing this to myself? These aren't the ones. Scotty had trapped himself in this same routine the last few nights, always ending up where he found himself now, indiscriminately pacing the streets of Eastside. He walked all the way back home but couldn't go in. He wasn't tired enough for sleep, and even if he were, it would be another night of nightmares. That's not what he wanted. Pulling his hair and digging his fingernails into his scalp, he decided to walk around to the city park and back again. The night isn't over yet. He was pacing down Catterick Road, not far from the city park, when he looked up at Madigan Tower, the most exclusive apartment block on East Side. He looked up at the top of the building, gazing at the lavish penthouses. He observed a disturbing sight on the very top one. He could make out a man standing on his balcony, only wearing a vest, gripping the railings and looming over the streets below. He focused back ahead to see a young man staggering towards him. It was him, the young kid with the blonde buzz cut from the club. Swaying as he walked, he twirled a big set of keys around his little finger, staring fiercely. Scotty's glare back was intense and unflinching. I won't be submissive, he thought. As they walked past each other, Scotty stared deep into his eyes and saw a hateful look accompanied with a bemused smile. A smile he had seen many times before by people who saw him like an animal to be toyed with. Faggot. 
Scotty stopped dead in his tracks. He had been called that name dozens, if not hundreds of times. It still hurt, if not like it used to. He thought he had learned to rise above the hatred. The events of three days ago had proven otherwise. The pain that had blistered and scorched his heart couldn't be overcome. His rage had built inside him like a pressure cooker. It needed just a spark to ignite an inferno. Faggot. Scotty heard the word repeated somewhere in his mind. He found himself taking off his thick metal choker from around his neck and wrapping it around his hand. The blonde kid was now a few yards past him. I won't be submissive. I won't live on my knees. Scotty told himself as a white-hot rage took hold of his extremities. Scotty ran back towards the kid, who jumped around to face him. Scotty's blood pumped furiously around his body. The point of restraint was past. He squeezed the chain in his fist as hard as he could and swung a curling, powerful punch. It landed perfectly on the kid's jaw, sending him crashing to the ground. Scotty mounted him and struck a powerful and merciless blow to his face. He heard a loud crack of bone breaking. A cocktail of adrenaline, pride, confidence, and power rushed through his body at the ease of this feat. I own this disgusting man. I own this slice of time. Scotty stood back off him and pulled out his mobile phone. He switched on the video camera and stood it against a nearby wall, letting it record this scum's destruction. He once again mounted him and rained punches down upon his face until he was pounding a crimson crater. Scotty finally got off him, his fist dripping in blood. He looked over a mountain range of swelling and a valley of blood where the kid's nose used to be. Scotty's thirst was quenched for now, but anger still raged strong inside him. He picked back up his phone from against the wall, leaving bloody fingerprints on the screen. He rubbed his fingers across his mouth. The sweet taste of vengeance lingered on his lips. This isn't the end. It's the beginning. He would return for more of his persecutor's blood. Striding powerfully away, he disappeared into the blackness of the night. It was quiet, like it always was on a Sunday. Litter still carpeted the roads leading to the city park. Bobby didn't meet anyone as she cantered through the streets. Her familiar stomach cramps were beginning to creep in, and she fought hard to ignore them. She had left her apartment without showering again, and she reaffirmed her pledge to start washing every day, like she did when she lived at Charlie's. At least the absence of a shower had helped the gash on her forearm heal. Most importantly, though, She'd cleaned her teeth every day this week, and still managed to use her teeth whitening bleach a couple times. Clothes, hair, and body odor were only temporary problems, as long as she kept her nice smile and her weight down. Staying thin was easy. She had no money to eat, and was all skin and bones. 
Bobby had managed to score some money that morning from a local store using one of her favorite misdirection scams. It was simple and rarely failed, but she still felt elated when she didn't have to waste any more precious time scrounging for money. She rolled up the sleeves of her red plaid cotton shirt and looked at her forearm. Her scab had grown thick and hard. She traced her middle finger lightly over its hard surface and marveled at her body's ability to heal itself. Her heart, too, was healing. It felt lighter now that Wednesday was four days behind her. Does Nikki regret rejecting me? She wondered. He was a special person, and she had started to think, somehow, they could get back to where they were, if he was even still interested. She tried not to dwell on it. She would be up at the park and buying soon anyway, and had most of the day still ahead of her. Sufficient money lay in her pocket to purchase enough to last a few days, and she wouldn't have to leave the house for a while. I could definitely have a shower. I might even start a drawing. Or even a painting, she thought. Bobby reached the southeast entrance to the park, walked through the big gold gates, and started up the long main path that formed the letter A. She walked through acres of green lawns lined with shrubbery, taking the time to appreciate her beautiful surroundings. She didn't always, sometimes too consumed with her cravings. With most of the east side in a collective hangover, a few morning dog walkers and joggers were all that passed her. There were, too, the nameless faces sitting alone on the dark red wooden benches, reading a paper or staring into space. She watched them against the backdrop of the resplendent landscaping and wondered what they had thought of her urgently walking up to the top of the park. She was headed northeast, where the main path snaked into smaller ones, leading to an area known as Stone Corner. It was a piece of land full of big boulders and jagged slabs of rock sticking out of the ground like daggers. Behind one particular stone would be Russ, his stone was marked with white chalk, not that it needed it. Rust was a permanent fixture of the park, always to be found on the far side of his stone, settled in a cobbled-together camp, including an outdoor stove. Halfway up the park, Bobby was sure she heard her name being shouted, and looked around. No one was there. Must be nothing, she reasoned, and carried on walking, returning to her own thoughts. Bobby! Bobby! There it was again. It sounded like it was coming from the park statue to the west. She came off the path and cut across the grass to the big open manicured green, which in its center stood Ophiotaurus, the ancient mythical beast of half bull, half serpent carved into solid granite. The bull's head and chest, large and imposing, led into a tail which looped around, the end finally melting into its stone gray base. It was at the base that Bobby thought she could see a dark figure. Bobby! 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 The voice was more energized now she was heading towards it. She arrived at the tail of the statue to find a man chained to it. What in the blue hell? She exclaimed. Bobby! Thank God you're here! Said the disheveled man who was shackled to the stone beast. My lord, are you okay? Bobby asked. Yeah, no. I'm okay. I've been here all night. The man said, grimacing and shaking. Wow, what happened, darling? The man winced and scrunched his face. Just a stupid prank. They can't have meant to do this. Listen, Bobby, what time is it? Bobby looked at her purple kid's watch. 9.43. God, it's going to start in 20 minutes. Bobby, do you have a phone? Bobby shook her head and waited for the disparaging look that duly came. It increased further when the man's glance lowered to her tatty white shoes peeking out from her flared jeans. God, I gotta get this ring there. All right, let's think, let's think, he said, implying they were going to solve this problem together. 
Bobby suspected they both knew better as she stood there confused. I don't know what he's talking about. I should really get to the top of the park. Her feet were labored as she edged away. Her eyes stayed on his bedraggled and shivering body. He must be so tired and cold. Many nights she had camped in Howard Woods, miserable and alone. Whoa, where the hell are you going, Bobby? I need you to deliver something for me. You do remember me, don't you, Bobby? Bobby didn't answer. It was only now she realized he had shouted her name and been using it all this time. He knows me. She tried to rack her foggy brain to recall him. He did seem familiar. Bobby, it's me, Josh, from high school, he said. Yeah, Josh Brown. Bobby did vaguely remember him. He was in her year, but not in her classes. He looked different. She remembered him as a skinny kid. Now his body was bloated and chubby. I'm surprised he even remembers me. Bobby was such a misfit in high school, she used to feel invisible. She recalled Josh was in the cool set, and they were all jerks. He hadn't picked on her like some of the others, but he and his friends used to look down on her with shared glances of ridicule. She hated that. She also hated herself for deep down wanting to be like them. Yeah, I remember you. She uttered. Listen, I'm supposed to be at a wedding right now. I'm the best man. I don't know what the fuck's happened, whether this is a prank gone wrong or whatever, but I should be at the church right now with the ring. You have got to take it to the church. Now! I can't. I, I can't. Bobby murmured. Jessica's gonna go nuts. She's got to have that ring. You remember Jessica and Davy, don't you? Jessica and Davy. Bobby had no trouble recalling them. Every high school year has a golden couple. For Bobby's year, it was Jessica and Davy. Not quite star football player and head cheerleader, but almost. They were the best looking, the most confident, and the wealthiest. Since the sixth grade, they had helped solidify each other's status. Bobby seeked their approval and friendship, just like everybody else. It never came, only coldness. Now they needed her, but there was no time. I'll get somebody to get a hacksaw. We'll get you out. Bobby offered, knowing she wouldn't actually bother. Or I'll get to a payphone. For fuck's sake, Bobby! Josh consciously paused and slackened his sharp tone with a fake-looking smile. He continued, Listen, there isn't much time for any of that. You need to take the ring out of my pocket and run as fast as you can to St. Bernard's Church. You know where that is, don't you? Well, yeah, but what about you? Don't worry about that now. Just take the ring, get to the church, and give it to one of the groomsmen or ushers at the back of the church. And for God's sake, don't make a scene. You can save the day, Bobby. She couldn't pinpoint precisely what it was. Maybe if it was later and her need for a fix was greater, or if it was someone other than Jessica and Davy, she would never have gone. The truth was, once the thought was in her mind, she never thought of doing anything with that ring other than get it to the wedding. Somewhere in her polluted heart still beat the need for acceptance and popularity. So it came to be that she found herself sprinting across to the other side of the main path and heading back south. It led back through the park and out near the churches. She ran as hard as she could, the ring box firmly in her hand. The last image of Josh played over in her mind. Just before she had started running, she had turned back to look at him. The look on his face said everything. He had just rested a lot of hope in her. A hopeless junkie, a heroin addict, a warp. Now it was up to her to save Five Sides High's royal wedding. Chapter 4. Get to the Church on Time 
Bobby felt her body flush with blood as she ran as fast as she could down the park path. Her adrenaline masked the harsh pounding on her feet. Her thought that she didn't need anyone's approval was betrayed by every forceful stride as she powered her way to the southwest entrance. She came out on Catterick Road and didn't stop running as her feet hit the smoother tarmac of the sidewalk. There were a few churches in the part of town she was headed, but she knew exactly where the one she wanted was. Her heart raced and her lungs grew tight as she fought the urge to stop. She raced around a sharp corner and onto Albert Street. She flew straight into a heavy-set man who was on the cusp of a crowd, exiting a small church. Hitting his large frame at full speed, her head bounced right off of his thick chest, making him lose his balance and spill into the crowd. The skin scraped off Bobby's hands as she, along with a handful of others, hit the ground hard. She didn't think for a second about the man she had sent crashing into the elderly churchgoers, or the blood seeping from her grazes. There was only one thing she was focused on. The ring box had sprung from her hand on impact. Bobby could feel her heart beat even faster as she frantically scanned the ground for it. Without getting up, she crawled along the ground commando style, scraping her elbows and knees further on the ground. Collapsed bodies and ensuing shrieks became a blur as her eyes scanned the ground for the ring box. Thankfully, as she swiveled hard to the left like a snake, the box came into sight a couple feet away. Bobby quickly snatched it back into her possession and gripped it tightly. She staggered to her feet, not daring to look up at the chaos she had created. She set off running again, dragging her sore, tired body back into a sprint. It wasn't far now until she would reach the church. As Bobby ran up to the magnificent solid oak double-hinged door, the thought that this might not be a good idea flashed into her brain. Like a shooting star, it left just as quickly. She placed both hands on the big brass handles, clamping the box to her palm with her little finger. The scab on her forearm had reopened, and blood streaked down her wrist. She refused to think about what awaited her. Her only plan was to slip in quietly. She pulled the door slowly, and an almighty creaking noise reverberated throughout the church. Gosh darn it. Bobby muttered to herself. The damage was already done, so she heaved the heavy doors fully open to an increasing racket of rusting hinges and aging wood. She paused in the doorway, exposed to 500 turned heads. Their expressions were either quizzical or of outrage. Jessica looked beautiful in a flowing gown, her blonde curls hanging past her shoulders. Despite being at the other end of a long aisle, Bobby could see her shock-filled face. The groom's head was dropped, and he wouldn't look at his enraged bride. Feeling a hundred eyes upon her, Bobby gingerly made her way down the aisle. She couldn't take the torture for long, and jogged to the front. Don't worry, y'all. I got it. I got it. She shouted, covering her mouth with her hand. Bobby handed over the box to Davy, giving him a pride-filled smile. Davy looked at Bobby as if she were a ghost, nodded, and meekly took it off her. Still open-mouthed, he turned and looked at the face of his bride. Gritted teeth, eyes blazing with fire. Davy looked away from Jessica's glare and dared not meet it again. He held the box out towards her and opened it. Jessica let out an ear-shattering shriek. He yanked it back and looked in the ring box. Bobby stared in disbelief. Good God Almighty, what is that? Davy's hand shook as he finally let go of the box and its contents fell to the ground. It was an eye. <laughs> Covered in a film of blood, a human eye rolled along the church floor as pandemonium erupted around it. Jessica let out another shriek, 
and the vicar turned green and crashed to the floor like a falling redwood. The high-pitched screams of various women rang in Bobby's ears as she tried to understand what was happening. Where the hell has an eye come from?